You're listening to Wake Up Call with Christina Previtt. I'm the CEO and co-owner of New Jersey Divorce Solutions, a law firm located in Edison, New Jersey. I've been practicing exclusively divorce and family law for the past 16 years. Everyone has a story. I interview them. Wake Up Call is an opportunity for you to hear inspiring stories from people who are making hard decisions, overcoming their fears, and living their most authentic life. This is a special episode of the Hashtag FemSquire series, where I interview women attorneys and law firm owners about their career path and their experience as an entrepreneur, including why they became a lawyer, how their practice has evolved, their biggest challenges and successes as both attorneys and business owners, and their vision for the future. They share their philosophies about business and life. Don't reinvent the wheel. Whatever you're going through, these ladies have been there and done that already. Learn from their mistakes and from their successes. Find out what works for them and what didn't. And you'll find that their inspiration, motivation, and challenges are probably very similar to your own. Whatever you're experiencing, you're not alone. I hope you enjoy these ladies' stories. My guest today is Robin Ross, a close personal friend and a divorce lawyer in New Jersey. Robin is co-owner and co-founder of Ross and Calandrillo, located in Mountainside, New Jersey. You may already know Robin from Wake Up Call Live, the live stream version of this podcast, which you can find on Facebook at Wake Up Call the Podcast. Robin is a regular on a special series we've been doing called Books and Quotes We Love. It's morphed into a conversation, not just about books and quotes, but about our personal philosophies about life, business, about being a woman in the world today, about being an entrepreneur, about relationships. Seriously, nothing is off limits. But today we're here to talk about Robin and her career path as a lawyer, as a business owner, why she chose divorce law, and what drives Robin. I did an interview with Robin in March, literally right before the shelter-in-place rules took effect in New Jersey due to COVID. There have been significant events in our world since that time, which unfortunately we did not get to discuss. Please keep that in mind as you listen. And without any further ado, here's my conversation with Robin. So we are here with Robin Ross. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Of course. I'm going to get all your secrets today. (laughs) Hopefully I can think of like good juicy ones that will make people want to listen to me um, in my usual boring go to work and come home life. I'll come up with some secrets. I'm sure that is absolutely not true. (laughs) So I start every show out with the same question. Okay. Where did you go to college and what did you think that you wanted to be when you grew up? Hmm. Well, I went to the College of New Jersey, which was formerly Trenton State. Um, And even in college, I knew I wanted to be an attorney. I majored in law and justice. Um... And I knew that I wanted to be an attorney. I wanted to be an attorney since I was seven. So, right. Like, you would think that at some point I would have rethought my career path. Like, the seven-year-old Robin should not have chosen what I would do with the rest of my life. But somehow she managed to do that. And she's still here, still doing it. Still here and kicking. Yeah. But I, I used to watch this show, L.A. Law, which I probably shouldn't have been watching at seven. But... I whatever. remember the show. I don't think I watched it. Yeah. No, I would. And I thought it was the coolest thing ever 
you know, like these people are in a courtroom and they're defending their positions. And, you know, courtroom drama is always so exciting and um, not at all similar to what real courtroom yeah. life is like. Yeah, it's television. Yeah, but um, but I knew that's what I wanted to do. So I decided from then that I was going to work towards being an attorney. I was going to go to Harvard Law, which did not happen. And um, and that was going to be my path. Did you read 1L? I book? did, but... I want to say that I read it right before law school. Or The Paper Chase. That's the other one. That That's older, though. Yeah, no, I didn't read The Paper I've heard of The Paper Chase, but yeah. I didn't read that. Um, and then I thought that I would want to sit on the Supreme Court because I was a huge Thurgood Marshall fan. And I go, wow, that's like the coolest thing. It's, you know, like the first, you know, black person on the Supreme Court, and then I can be on the Supreme Court. And I come to find out that I really have no big love of constitutional law or anything along those lines. So the Supreme Court's probably not in the cards for me. But when I was a child, that was, those were the aspirations. Well, sometimes you have to know what you don't want, right? (laughs) Exactly. To figure out what you do want. So did this love of law ever waver at all? Because you were seven. No, but but I also think I didn't I didn't really know what it was. You know, so it's difficult for something to waver when you don't know the realities of it. So, you know, all through, you know, elementary school and middle school and high school and even in college, I knew I want to be a lawyer. That's what I want to do. Even in law school, I still knew it I that's what I wanted to do, although law school was a horrible experience, I think for I don't think anybody has come to me and said, "Oh my god, I loved law school." Nobody loves I've law. heard people say they that love they law lo- school. Oh. Have you heard that expression that if you loved law school, you'll hate practice? And if you hated law school, you'll love practice? I mean, that that makes sense for my life because I was not a fan of law school at all. But I will say that I am a fan of practice. Like I do enjoy what I do at least 80% of the time. (laughs) Where did you go to law school? I went to Seton Hall, like every other New Jersey attorney, right? Well, I went to Rutgers. Well, you know, I got waitlisted at Rutgers. You so did. I did. I think wasn't Seton Hall harder to get into? I though? don't I don't know. I take it very personally. So now I have like this hatred of Rutgers for oh. waitlisting me. But, oh. but whatever. And I actually said to them, screw your waitlist. Like I wouldn't be on the waitlist. I wouldn't do it. I was like, nope, fine, I'll go to Seton Hall <laughs> if you don't want me. Um so I ended up going to Seton Hall. Well, it seems like it worked out. Yeah was fine it was fine I have no complaints about that so what did you hate about law school what was it that you didn't like um I didn't like the amount of cutthroat competition I'm not built that way so while there were a few people for sure that weren't really like that um I just, I didn't like the, well, there's a curve, so I'm not going to help you and I'm not going to, I don't want to study with you and I can only study with this person because I need to pull up the grid. And and I, I'm not built like that. Like if you need something, here, I'll give it to you. You need an outline, I'll give you my outline. And there were certainly a few people that I did go to law school with that were absolutely like that. Um, one of my law school classmates, I still, still say to him to this day that he saved my law career because... My laptop had this habit of crashing right before finals, two years in a row, right before Ooh. finals. Laptop would crash, lost all of my outlines, lost all, lost all of my notes, everything. We were in the same section. He gave me everything he had, which a lot of people wouldn't do. Both years? Both years. Wow. He was like, Robin, if you just want my notes, yeah, tell just, me. Why don't stop with the <laughs> laptop crashing story and just tell me that you would like to have my notes. But... um. 
And it's funny that he chastised me because I bought this cockamamie laptop from some guy who like built it for me. And he told me not to buy that laptop. He goes, just go and get a ThinkPad and just, and I was like, well, you know, he's gonna build it for me, it's gonna be great. Crashed right before finals. I went back to the guy that I bought the laptop from and lost my mind. Like I'm, I'm, it's, I'm glad that I wasn't arrested. I lost my mind. Because he was like, well, you know, laptops crash. I, I mean, cursing happened. There was a lot. Eventually, I left the store, but... <laughs> not with a police escort. Not with a police escort. I left the store on my own. Um, but I completely, like, flipped my crap. Um, well, it reminds yeah. me of that episode of Sex in the City mm-hmm. when Carrie's computer totally crashes... Were you, oh, yeah. Are you a Sex in the City fan? Huge Sex in okay. the City. So, so I'm literally visualizing her going to like the Geek Squad. Like you need to fix this. Yes. yes. And, and then, you know, everybody she would talk to would say, well, didn't you back up? And she's like, what's this backup that everyone's talking about? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> that was me. I ba- I had nothing backed up. But um, yeah, no, it was exactly like that episode of me just completely freaking out about this this laptop but but I think that going back that's what one of the things about law school I didn't like was that level of competition and some level of cattiness yeah in a way that I was kind of thinking you know we're, we're all going to be attorneys why can't we just help each other yeah like can't we all just get along well, you know even, like just, yeah right yeah. <laughs> even today even today sometimes you know there's some attorneys that are wonderful they'll help you they'll right. give you business tips whatever you need mm-hmm. and then there's other ones no they won't we're not going to name any names, but I don't get it. I don't, I, don't I don't get it. Like I've had attorneys email me randomly and say like, hey, do you have this? Do you have an affidavit for this? Do you? And I will literally redact it out, email it in Word. So I'm yeah. making your life easy. Here's my form. Take it. Like yeah. I don't. Why, why do I need to, to not be helpful? It just doesn't make sense. To it's me. almost like there's this sentiment that we can't both be successful at the same time. So if I give you something and Mm -hmm. you're better at it than I am, or you get more clients than I do or whatever, you make more money than I do, Mm -hmm. then that means you're taking it away from me. No. It's like, no, we can both be successful. We, you know, we can, we can both do this. Right. And if I give you an idea and you excel at it and you're great at it, and maybe I'm not as great at it as you are, then it kind of. To me, it's like it's, it was meant to be. Like it was meant to be something for you to be great at because there's something else that I'm going to be great at that maybe you're not so great at. It's I, just, yeah, it's it's all good. Yeah, it's all good. we're we're all gonna <laughs> we're all gonna kind of end up in the same place anyway. Well, you know yeah. what, da- David Nagel. I know I've talked to you about him before. He, he says in the end we're all gonna die. Yeah, we all end up in the same place, right? Right. Well, I'm not talking about heaven and hell, but yeah. what, well, that's yeah, another that conversation. Whole other podcast. But we all end up dead. Yeah. We all get to the same place. But yeah. anyway, I digress. Okay. Okay. So you went to Seton Hall, you hated it. And at some point you were done with that. Third year, your computer didn't crash, right? No, no, not third year. It did not crash. And then I was working in insurance defense. Okay, so that was your first job out of Well, I, that law was school. in law school. I was interning. Oh, okay. Yeah. I was interning for working in-house counsel de- insurance defense. So, not like did nothing related to family law in law school at all. Like, so, what was, kind of law did you think you were going to do? Well, I thought that I was going to be like this big fancy corporate lawyer. You know, like I was going to, you know, do 
review contracts and, you know, do all of this like high power transactional work and all of that. And then um, I took a business law class. And I was like, this is horrible. <laughs> I don't, I don't want to do this. And then like, you know, you had to take tax and I go like, this is also horrible. I don't want to do this. And I was working, like I said, in insurance defense and I knew I didn't want to do that either. I said, this is like watching paint dry. This is horrible. Well, how did you end up with that job? It was just available? It was available. Okay. Yeah, it was It was literally like one of my sorority sisters goes like, hey, I'm working at this place. And they, they were looking for law clerks. Do you want to be a law clerk? And I think at the time it paid something wonderful. It was like... <laughs> it seems like, like a lot of money, right? Yeah, it was like it pays like $17 an hour. And I was like, sweet! You know, so <laughs> like that's way better than Chipotle <laughs> and exactly, McDonald's. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So I said, I'll take it. And she goes, yeah, and it pays. And really all you're doing is like writing memos. And I was kind of like, I can do that. Well, I remember I did an internship in college, in law school at the DAG's, at the AG's office. And I wanted, I thought I wanted to do DIFUS work. I okay. thought I wanted to be a DAG. And I'm so glad I had that internship because I realized I do not want to do this. Yeah. This is not for me. So that's it really saved point, me. Right. That's the point of an internship. That's yeah. why they have value is not for you to go in and do an internship and just, you know, kind of muddle through it, but it also shows you what you do like and what you don't like. So, being at a law firm, I at least knew, well, I do like the practice of law. I like the aspects of going to court and doing all of those things. I just don't like this type yeah. of law. Well, so, that's good. Because yeah. if you get to the point where you're like, I don't like any of this, I should have <laughs> joined the circus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It would have been guess, a little late. Yeah. You're in trouble then. Yeah. So you were able to scratch off insurance work mm-hmm. off the list. But you didn't, it doesn't sound like you had any desire to divorce. So how did that happen? So from doing insurance defense, I decided that I wanted something with a lot more client contact. Like I wanted to see clients, speak to clients, touch clients, like not in a creepy way, but in a professional (laughs) way. And like, I wanted to actually know who I'm representing. And in insurance defense, you're representing an insurance company. You never see the person in the accident. You never really see a human being most of the time. So when I left there, I said, I'm going to interview very randomly that I made this choice. I'm going to interview at immigration law firms and family law firms. How I came up with that, I don't know. But in my head, I said, this is where I'm going to go so that I can have a lot of client contact. And boy, do I have client contact. Yeah, you sure do. Yeah, I picked the field with all sorts of client contact. But then I ended up getting a job at a family law firm and I it just it felt right to me when I got the job offer it felt right so I took it and I always say to people that in doing family law in my opinion that you either love it or you hate it and I think you know pretty quickly if it's for you you know so working there I enjoyed it and I knew that it was for me and where was this this was in Roseland I was working with Kazira and Hearts in Roseland I think they're still in Roseland at this point but um they might be in Livingston but um I was working for Judy Hearts and she was the matrimonial partner and Barry Kazira kind of did a little bit more of everything else. He did some matrimonial too, but my job was just to be her associate. So I got like, just jump into the pool, hands, like all hands on deck, you know, very hands-on experience with doing family law. So I was only there for two years, but by the time I left there, I could handle a case beginning to end. Like I, I learned how to work a divorce case. I learned how to, you know, handle family law issues 
And I think that one of the things that made me really enjoy doing it was, you know, there was one particular client. She was the first divorce client I had. And she was in an incredibly abusive marriage. And it was kind of odd because she was the primary wage earner, which is not common in an abuse situation. Like she made all the money. Yeah. The, you know, crazy abusive husband really didn't make any money. But he was just like, just not a nice guy. And she she went through a lot of psychological and emotional and physical abuse with him. And she was the first divorce I ever handled. So there were a lot of issues in this one divorce. And um, I mean, first motion I ever argued for like first of everything. And I really think that after dealing with her and looking at the impact that I had on her life, that that's kind of what sold me. You know, and I will say that if I had a different client other than her, maybe I wouldn't have felt the same way. But I really felt like I did something, like I did something good for someone. And even years and years after that, you know, when I was, you know, off at a completely different firm and been practicing for, you know, many, many years, you know, she contacted me and said, you really had no idea how how much you did for me and how much you impacted my life and how strong you made me, you know, just watching you stand up to him, watching you be able to speak for yourself and speak for me. And it taught me that I have a voice. And I was kind of like, well, that's kind of cool. That that's what I do. You that's know a good I mean? feeling. I think sometimes we don't realize the impact that we have because we do this every day and yep. we're not necessarily, we're looking at the annoyances, right? Of mm -hmm. every case, not necessarily the good things that we're doing and the people that we come into contact with that are actually very grateful. Right. So that's nice. that, And it's good that you had that experience very early. Really early. So I don't know if things would have been different if I didn't have Maybe. that experience really early. But I think that that taught me that what I'm doing is is more important than a lot of people think, you know, when they kind of think, oh, you're a divorce lawyer. Well, yeah, you're breaking more, up families. Yeah, you're breaking up happy homes. Well, first of all, they weren't happy yeah. if they're in my office. Yes. So I'm not breaking up happy homes. But... But you do realize that what you're doing has impact and you can actually change someone's life that, you know, you're doing something that's a lot more than what you may think. And I think that a lot of us go to law school in the first place because we might be slightly idealistic and saying like, oh, I want to change the world and I want to do all of these great things. And you may think, oh, I'm just a divorce lawyer, but you are doing great things and you're changing somebody's world. You know, you might not be changing the world as a whole, but you're changing something for somebody. And I think that that's important. I agree with that. And I think we forget that if somebody's coming to you, it's because they're in an unhappy situation, whether they've initiated or not. Right. They're in an unhappy situation and they don't quite know how to move forward. Mm -hmm. So we are helping them. And I don't think that we're just convincing ourselves of that. I think no. we really are. No. So I, I learned that lesson early on. And yeah, you have some cases where you feel like, oh my God, I can't believe this is what I do for a living. Like, I can't believe I went to law school to deal with these shenanigans. And then, you know, but I f find that those are luckily few and far between. And that you then also have those cases where you really feel like you're helping. You're helping a family. You're helping a person. You're helping somebody with their children and how to deal with the other person and co-parent. You're helping somebody learn how to deal with abuse or deal with a narcissist or, deal, you know, you're you're doing a lot of stuff. Yeah, you need to have a high level of emotional intelligence when you do family yes. law. 
I would agree with that. And I'm not sure that can be learned so much. Right, which is why I don't think it's for everybody. I think some people come into it and realize right away they can't do it. And I've been at law firms where, you know, younger attorneys have come in and they're kind of like, I hate this. And I always say, well, if you hate it, stop doing it now. I've told people that too. I had an associate. I've had more than one associate (laughs) where I've said, look, if you don't like this, I'm going to do you a huge favor right now. Don't stay. Right. Find something else. I mean, it's not a failure. It's okay if it's not your thing. But don't stay in it because the longer you do this, you're just going to get pigeonholed. You're going to be like a one trick pony. Exactly. And you're not going to be doing this for 20 years and then suddenly change a practice area. You could, but I think most people just don't do that. Right. So I like to say that I've saved a lot of people from staying in family law when they really hated it. Yeah. And I think that that's the best thing you can do is if and it's not family law, it's in anything. Like why stay in anything if you hate it? Why do something you hate? True. Well, that's also probably another podcast. It is a whole (laughs) podcast, right, about finding your place of happy and doing what actually makes you happy. Yeah. But but it it goes for anything. Like, don't don't stay if you hate it. I think people have to believe that they deserve to be happy because there's so many people that walking around that have been taught somehow, maybe within their families, growing up from their parents or whomever, that to have low expectations to, yeah. to not think that you're put on this earth to be happy. Wow, that's a whole other podcast too, just about you yeah. know, people understanding that they deserve a level of happiness. But I think that you probably have that awareness, again, because of what we both do every day, that people come into our offices and don't think that they deserve to have a happy marriage no. or that they deserve to have a happy life or that they'll just kind of muddle through with, you know, mediocrity and it's just like oh well whatever I have a crappy marriage and a crappy job and a crappy house and you know my dog doesn't listen to me and that's just fine and it's not fine it doesn't have to be fine or it's not even so much that everything's crappy it's just it's fine you know my life's Mm. good it looks great on paper to other people it looks wonderful but I'm not happy I'm Mm -hmm. not doing what I want to do I don't have the things I want to have you know I don't have the kind of relationship that I want to have it's okay and that's another thing I try to do with my divorce clients is someone doesn't have to be wrong no right there doesn't have to be something wrong with the couple Mm -hmm. it's if it's not a good fit anymore it's not a good fit and that's okay well you know fine is a four-letter word right (laughs) like yeah fine isn't always the best you know just think about it when you go to someone you say how are you doing you go fine yeah. That's not really not great. Yeah, like not great. Not like, oh, I'm wonderful. I'm awesome. It's like I'm fine. I'm just bumping through life. Yeah, yeah you know, it's okay. Fine. I'm alive. Yeah. Like like I don't think that that fine is necessarily a good thing. I agree. I never heard that expression fine is a four letter word. I just made it up. Oh, yeah. it's good. Woo! I'm gonna quote you on that one. <laughs> I remember a guy that would, every time you saw him and you'd be like, how are you? He'd be like, fantastic. And yeah. he always said it just like that. <laughs> fantastic. I'm like, really? Yeah. Really fantastic. Yeah. But you know what? Sometimes you have to speak things into being. You yeah. know, like I will wake up in such a crappy mood sometimes and I will say, you know what? You're going to have an awesome day. Like this day's going to be amazing. And maybe I wake up and I'm like, it's not amazing. It's not. You know, but... 
you have to kind of say it. So maybe he, his fantastic was his way of speaking it into truth. Yeah. You know, I think, too, there are people that are just always positive. No matter what's happening, they see the better side of things. Yeah. It just positivity. It goes a long way. And then there's other people. We all know them, right? Mm-hmm. They're always complaining. Nothing's ever good enough. Yeah, the Eeyore people. Yes, right. Eeyore people. Nobody loves me. You know, like it's those gonna people. It's going to rain today. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I think that I'm I'm a happy mixture. I like, think you are. I don't I don't think I'm overly positive. I think I try to be much more positive, but I don't think I'm like a negative Nancy. Either. You're not. Like I need to be a you know you need a good mix. You're not, mix. but I think what you also can do is you can laugh at yourself, and you can be sort of self-deprecating, <laughs> but in a funny way. Well, I'm a goofball. Like I like the things that that happen in my life. If I don't laugh at myself, it's kind of you know. Yeah. All right, so that's our dose of positivity for the day. Good. So you didn't do a clerkship. I did not. Why? Because I wanted to make money. So I know. Mm -hmm. And like if I had to to do it all again, I would have absolutely done a clerkship. Like I say to people all the time, if they're thinking about not doing a clerkship, do a clerkship. And they'll say, but you didn't do one and you turned out okay. Well, first of all, I'm super special. So you can't <laughs> you can't go by me. But 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 no, it was it was an experience that I feel like I missed out on on such a level because when I got out of law school, I was kinda like, I need to get a job and make some money and I, you know, I want to get out there and you wanted I, more than $17 an hour. I did. Although that was amazing was at the good, time. But I like it so much. I want more. Right. But, and I also don't really think that anyone told me how important it was. Like no one came to me and said, you know, you really should do a clerkship. Like you really should do this. And I'm not sure why. I don't know if I didn't have adequate mentors at the time or if maybe, you know, I'm not saying that Seton Hall should have told me it's really not their job. It's their job to educate me and take my money. But, <laughs> but you know, but but nobody really told me how important it was and what a good experience it was and how crucial it would be and the relationships that you would make. And, you know, so I really didn't think it was that important. I was kind of like, all right, I can get this job making nothing or I can go out and work at a law firm and make some money. Well, I think the reason I wanted a clerkship is because I was a little terrified that I felt like I really didn't know how to do anything because you oh, don't I really know how to do anything. Oh, when I knew you how to do nothing. School. Nothing. And I was like, how am I going to learn this? And I, th- I must've picked this up from somebody yeah. that I should do a clerkship. And I actually got an internship. My, I was a night student. So I was mm-hmm. in school for four years. My fourth year, I got an internship for my judge and because I knew I'd be a shoe in like, of course, he, unless I'm a complete idiot, of course, he's going <laughs> to hire me the next right. year. And that's what happened. So I really was effectively a clerk for two years. And it was one of my absolute favorite jobs ever. Did you clerk in family? I did for Judge Daly. He's retired yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I had the best experience. Yeah. Well, everybody that I speak to about their clerkship has the best. Ex- they They always have such positive things to say about how much they learned and what, what the job meant to them, which is why I kind of feel like I missed out. But, you know. Maybe what? it's not too late. Maybe you could go do that. <laughs> if there are any judges out there looking for a headstrong clerk who's going to want to not listen to anything you say and do her own thing, holler at me. You like, would I will... be the best law clerk ever, probably. I'm like, no, judge, we're not doing that. That's, yeah. not, that's not how we're going to do this. But Well, that's kind of how I was. <laughs> but, I, but again, I was when I was starting my... My real clerkship, I had already been there a year. So 
I didn't have the same stress and anxiety that the other clerks had because I already knew my way around. Yeah, I knew, knew everybody. Everybody knew me. I knew how to do my job already. Yeah. So, but I I feel you on the money because I don't know about you, but I grew up totally broke. Yeah. So I needed money. Yeah. And, uh, you know, you can tell me what your experience was. It doesn't sound like you had no. rich parents, you know, feeding you money. I did not nor do I now have rich parents feeding me money. So, you know, when I left law school, I kind of like, I wanted to to go out and earn and take care of myself and be able to get an apartment and, you know, and be an adult, like be a grown up. So no, like I didn't have like parents paying for law school for me. I did have loans. I still have loans, you know, me so ugh, that's, that's another podcast also. Yes. But, um, but, you know, I had to borrow money to go to law school. So I didn't come, you know, from from wealth. So for me, making money was important. And I think that in retrospect, if I had to speak at that time to my younger self, I would have said, take the year because experience is often w- worth more than money. And I think as adults, we know that, you know, we know that experiences can can give you so much more and make you so much richer than actual money can many yes. times. Um but I think at that age, I was kind of like, I need to go and make some bank. Like, I need to get yeah. out there. So Yeah. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. And I think probably a lot of our listeners can relate to that. When you're 20, especially if I grew up poor. So when I was that age, I just wanted to get my hands on some money. I was like, I'm not going to live like this the right. rest of my life. Like, I want stuff, right. <laughs> you know, and it wasn't even necessarily about stuff. I think you just touched on it is I wanted to feel independent. I mm-hmm. wanted to feel like I can care for myself. I can take care of myself. I can support myself. Right. And it wasn't like it was, you know, to this day, like, you know, it's not like my parents were kicking me out and saying, like, you can't stay here and you need to find a place to be. It, it wasn't that way at all. I even think that right now at 39 years old, if I was like, mom and dad, can I come home? They'd be like, that would be awesome. You'll make dinner. We'll be great. We'll watch movies. Like, they're not at all like yeah. you need to get out. But I just wanted that independence. Like, I just wanted to, you know, get out and have a place of my own and just start adulting. And now look at me. And now you don't want to adult. Now look at me. Who wants to look at us? We all wanted to be adults and now look at us. Why is such a good idea? (laughs) Okay. So, all right. Coulda, woulda, shoulda. You didn't do the clerkship, but you turned out out okay. Yeah. Um, So you were at that family law firm, did you say two years? I was there for two years. And then I left there and went to another family law firm. Um, and then I stayed there for about eight years. Um, and it was kind of the same situation. Like I learned a lot. It was, it was bigger as far as, you know, family. What firm was it? I was with Townsend Tomeo in Newmark in Morristown. I think they're in Morris Plains maybe now. No, Whippany. They're in Whippany now. But um, I was with them in Morristown and it was the same thing. Like I learned a lot. There were more attorneys there, different styles of attorney, which was kind of nice because you know, at the first firm, really the only person doing family was Judy. So I learned her style. You know, I learned how to practice her way. Then you go to a bigger firm and you kind of see like, well, this person does it this way and this person does it that way. And, you know, you you get so much more experience from that. And then saying like, okay, well, I can take a little bit of this and a little bit of that. Yeah. And you kind of, you know, ooh, make yourself your own little attorney recipe and yeah. you turn out who you are. I, I really try to influence my associates not necessarily to do things the way that I would do it. Mm-hmm. I tell them how I would do it. And I and I think as I've grown as um, 
an entrepreneur, as as an attorney who's actually mentoring other attorneys, I've softened this a little because I think I used to try to say, no, you're going to this is how you do it because right. it was the way that I would do it. And then I started to realize everybody really has to find their own style. Mm-hmm. As long as you're being effective and representing your client. Right. That's really what's important. So some we we know that some people are very aggressive. Yeah. Some aren't. Some mm-hmm. aren't at all. And yeah. then there's everything in between. So I have learned that I have to just coach them and really let them develop their own style and the way that they do things. Yeah. And I think that I I was given the ability to do that cuz I mean you have to remember I came in there, you know, being two years out. So you're still, yeah, you're still, still baby kind of a lawyer. puppy. You know what yeah. I mean? So yeah, I knew how to handle a case. I could, you know, I, I knew how to lawyer, quote unquote, but, you know, I was still able to get a lot from all of the people that worked there so that I could develop, well, maybe I need to be more aggressive in this area and less aggressive in this area. And this is how I talk to a client. And this is how I talk to, you know, other attorneys. And, you know, and you learn from everyone, you know, I'm not going to say there was all like leprechauns and pixie sticks. There were bad things, too. I learned things I didn't want to do. You know what I mean? You learn that from seeing other attorneys, you know, what you do want to do and what you don't want to do. Yeah. So all of that's still learning experience, though. And it's still to me is is positive because you can look at something and go, yeah, I don't want to be that way. I don't want to do that. Yeah. Um, We've all been there. Yeah. How would you describe your style, your litigation style? Um, I feel like I am hybrid aggressive. I don't become aggressive until I have to be. I think that I usually have an eye towards um, resolution, that I always think that things can be resolved, that we can all sit down and figure this out, and that cooler heads can prevail. Um, But honestly, like, if you start being a jerk to me, I'll be a jerk to you. Like, that's just that's just kind of how it is. And, and I think that a lot of times people mistake um, my desire to be amicable to, you know, I'm not going to go to court and kick your ass. Like I will, if that's what we have to do. Like if, if that's how you want to do things, that's how we'll do things. But, but I always think that, that, that really should be a last resort. Like I even tell, I agree. tell my clients, I was speaking to a client today and I said, look, court is, um, inefficient. It is slow and it is costly. That's what court is. Absolutely. So, so the reality of the situation is, is that you're not going to get a quick result you might not get the result you want. You're going to be very frustrated with how the court process works, that you're going to go to court and nothing happens. And you go to court and the judge can't take you today. And you go to court and why don't you leave court and go to mediation? Well, why didn't you tell us that before we came to court? You know, so that's how court is. And you end up spending a lot of money. So it really should be a last resort. Litigation should be a last resort. But sometimes it's necessary. Yeah, I agree with that. And I do see going to court as a failure in some sense Mm -hmm. like something failed somewhere we weren't able to reach a resolution right for all the reasons you just said it's never a good idea to go to court but I think people have this law and order sentiment in their head that that's what it's like or the good wife I don't know if you used to watch that show Mm -hmm. I loved that show but and Juliana Margulies played the main character but she would always go to court and she would have the one piece of evidence that or rule of law that was going to save the day and leave everyone would leave happy her client would leave happy and that's what people see. Right. So they think that's what happens and, and that she, you leave. She practiced every sort of law. Too. She did. too. Like, so she was good you, at everything. Oh, you were an expert at everything. But 
You know. Yeah. So and people see that and they think that that's how the way it is. Right. And it's not the way it is. No. Yeah. I've actually told people when that insist they want a trial on a case that's simple and can be resolved. You should go to the courthouse one day and I'll find a trial for you. Go to court and see what it's really like. Yeah. It's boring. Yeah. You show up. You wait an inordinate amount of time. Mm-hmm. Watch other people's cases. It's yeah. not exciting. It's not going to happen the way that you think it's going to happen. Probably nobody listens to me and goes no. to the courthouse. But I think it, the message still gets across often. Well, that's one of the reasons why I think that getting people into court, especially when you're you're going down that litigation path, that getting them into court sooner than later is sometimes a good thing. Um, you know, just having the experience of, you know, I had to go to court. I had to take a day off of work. I had to sit there all day. Nothing happened the way I thought it was going to happen. You know, the judge had very little time for us. I didn't even get to see the judge, you know, whatever the case may be. And I understand, and I wasted a lot of money to do it. So, you know, unfortunately, it's not something that we can make happen. I'm not a proponent of saying, well, let's file some frivolous motions just to get everybody into court so they can see how it is. But I do think that sometimes doing it from the very beginning, I've had clients that go, you know what? I don't think I want to do this court thing. Like we went and I spent a lot of money and then we just waited. Yes. All you're day. paying to wait. You're all paying day. To wait. We just waited and we just chatted about, you know, foods that we like and you know, like Yeah. I paid you X amount of dollars to basically sit and socialize. Right. Right. Yeah. And and that's what it is. And I think once they realize that that's what courts like all the time, for the most part, it it kind of takes that incentive away it doesn't make it as sexy to go to court all of a sudden it's kind of like court stinks like i don't want to go to court yeah watch law and order for your court experience yeah don't uh, do it in real life much better so you're at this law firm you were there eight years so Mm -hmm. it mustn't have been terrible no no but then you start to feel the uh, stirrings of Mm -hmm. i think i need to be an entrepreneur when did that start so it started probably I still remember exactly where I was. I was in the car driving to court in Monmouth County, which is like a, it's a decent drive for me. But um, I think that it was probably about two years before I left that I started thinking, I think that I want to go out on my own, which was the funniest thing to me because people would ask me all the time, like, don't you want to open your own practice? Don't you want to, you know, have your own firm and do your own thing? And I was like, absolutely not. Really? Oh, my God. If you would have asked me, you know, let's say five years into me practicing, would I ever want to open my own? No, no. I said, I don't want to run a business. I want to practice law. Like, I just want to be a lawyer. I don't want to have Think about running a, a business and being an entrepreneur and dealing with people and employees and man, man, man. I didn't want to. I didn't want to do it. And um, it's so funny because you never say never, right? Like I really thought I would never open my own practice. Then as I'm working and working, um, again, I think it kind of goes back to the whole like, hmm, I like money, so I started thinking about money. Right? Here we go again. I know, like. It's that- Seeing a theme here. Damn money. It always gets you. But I started thinking to myself, and you, you, I think we've all done prior to leaving a firm, we've all done this infamous calculation of like, how much would I need to work to make what I'm making now? Right. So so true. We all have done that calculation. (laughs) So at one point I got, you know, I got my calculator out and I said, 
okay, I know what my salary is now. And let's say I continue to bill the hour or the, you know, the, the billable, whatever they're, they're charging me at now. And I did the calculation and I said, okay. And I think at that time I said, I would need to work 18 hours a week to make what I'm making now. Now, granted, that is a very rudimentary and incorrect calculation for many, many reasons. Like once you actually open a business, you realize why that's not true, because you have to pay rent and you have to pay staff and you have to pay for insurance and you have to, all these things are eating away at that, you know, that money. But that's your rough and dirty calculation, right? So I go, 18 hours, I can do that. Because you think you're, you're living law firm life. So you're working, you know, 40 hours a week, 50 hours a week, sometimes 60 hours, you know, depending on what you need to do. And I go, 18 hours. I think and mine was even less than that. Yeah. You know, like, it was I like can, 10. And I can make what I'm making now working 18 hours a week. And then, of course, you don't really think about things like receivables. And are you going to collect all of that money that you've been? You're not, like I said, it's rough and dirty. But then I thought of that and I go, I can work more than 18 hours. And then if I work more than 18 hours, I can make more than I'm making now. Then, so that was kind of the money component. But that for me was not enough because one of my shortcomings in life, I think, is that money does not completely drive me, which maybe I I would be in a different place if it did. But that wasn't enough. So I said, okay, well, yeah, that's cool. Then you start thinking about, well, wouldn't it be nice to be able to do things the way you want to do things and practice the way you want to practice? And the reality is, you know, being at a law firm, and even though at that time that I made that decision, um, I wasn't a partner yet. I ultimately became a partner at that law firm. But I wasn't a partner yet, but you still have people telling you how to do things and how to run your case. And you may say, I don't really think that I want to file an order to show cause. And they go, no, no, you need to file an order to show cause. And you're kind of like, I don't, but, but that's stupid. I don't want to do that. You know what I mean? But you still have to listen to other people telling you how to do your job on some level. Yeah. So, Um, I'm sure that there came a point where I had some experience where I said, well, this is crap. You know, like there was just one moment where I go like, I want to be able to do things how I want to do it. I want to run a practice how I want to run a practice. And you do see things that you would want to do differently. So then I took that and coupled it with my 18 hours that I would need to work to make my salary. Then I said, you know what? There's really no reason not to do this. So then I started thinking very seriously about doing it. Then, darn it, they made me a partner. And it's that, like they were inside your head. Oh, and that derailed everything. Because I said, well, I can't leave now. They made me a partner. But you know what? I've had this conversation with other people. What does it really mean to be a partner? Nothing. Yeah, right? Because I, I always, whenever, and this sounds so awful, but whenever I see that some attorney made partner, and I'm saying this with finger quotes, I almost feel like, They've just given you some new title to make you feel like you got something. Well, that's precisely what it was, because I believe that, you know, I worked for a bunch of attorneys. In my mind, attorneys are smart people. And I think that ultimately they look and they go, you know, that Ross, she's looking a little froggy. Let's do something to make her stay. And And she's good and she's an asset to us and we need to keep her. And I honestly believe that there was some part of it that was we need to make her a partner to get her to stay. So I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but I, I do think on some level, 
you know, when, when you say partner with your air quotes, yeah. I said that about myself. I said, I'm a partner in air quotes because like, I don't make any real decisions. I don't have any sort of influencing power over how this firm is run or how we do things or how we present ourselves or how we market. I, I had no influence on anything. I was just called a partner. Yeah. And I think sometimes there's value to that because to the outside world, people will look at an associate versus a partner differently. Yeah. So it gives you a little more credibility. And I know that there are people that are concerned about that and they want that title. And I get that. Mm -hmm. And there are plenty of people that don't want more responsibility. And if that's who you are, then that's a great position for you to be in. Yeah. But I think when that's not enough, Mm -hmm. you know, when you really do want something that's not just a title, it's not enough. I don't think you can ever really be made happy at another firm unless you're an equity partner. Right. And I and I didn't think that that was a path that was for me there. So I said, well, you know what? That's nice. They made me a partner. And I kind of said, well, all right. So I pushed back my plan to start my own practice by a year at that point. Well, that sounds like such a long time. I know. Why? But it's not in the scheme of things. Do you think it was because you felt like you owed them something because they made you this title? Absolutely. And the reality of the situation is I owed them nothing. I owed Looking them back, nothing. Yeah. I like they could have made me a partner and I, and I could have left because here's the reality of the situation. At the end of the day, a business is a business is a business. So if it got to the point where they had to get rid of me because that was the best thing for their firm. They would have done it and not thought twice. I was just thinking that and I was going to say it, but you yeah, did. Yeah, like so. they would have done it and not thought. And and I don't begrudge them that. It's, it's a, a business, business decision. Yes. It's a business. So I wouldn't have sat there and said to them, you owe me. I was here eight years. You owe me nothing. Yeah. But the same way I owe you nothing. Yes. So I think that the reality of the situation is I had that feeling of, owing of, oh, well, I I have to do it this way. And it's going to look bad if they just made me a partner. And then two months later, I leave like, that's horrible. I can't do that. So all of those nagging things um, that very, in a very sexist way, I will say are women problems, because I don't think that men have these problems that we do of thinking they owe anybody anything for anything. Um, I think they have it a lot less. Yeah, I I think that there is a larger sense, I'm not saying it's in a bad way, but a larger sense of entitlement with men of like, well, I deserve this. I deserve to be a partner. I deserve to have my own firm. I deserve, I deserve. Whereas I'm kind of like, thank you so much for employing me and working me like a mule all of these years. You know what I mean? Like, well, no, I don't owe you. I gave to you just the same as you gave to me. They I got gave something you, out of it. Yeah, you definitely got something out of the deal. So it's not a situation where I can leave and say, oh, my God, I just left them high and dry. Like, you got a lot out of the deal. You got a lot out of the deal the same way I got a lot out of the deal. So well, it's fine. I think what's different about the way men think is we look at it like it's personal. Right. And there's emotion attached to it. And I think men do that much less. They just look at it like business. There's no emotion attached to it. It's not personal. Right. And I I think that, you know, what, what kind of just punctuates that for me is that I would never say I left my firm and started my own because I hate them. Like, oh, I hated them so much and I had to go and they were horrible. And like, no, I started my own firm because that was the best thing for me. Yes. It's the best thing for me to do. Absolutely. And that's what we all should be doing, right? Yeah. Whether it's leave someplace to go to another place or leave to start your own thing. 
Or if you have your own firm and you're like, I hate this. I don't want to do this. This is not for me. There is absolutely no shame in acknowledging that and going to work for someone else again. And I think that that was one of the things that helped to to push me to do it was that I, I said to myself, well, you know what? Let's say I do this and it doesn't work and I hate it. I always have an option. Like I'm, n- I'm never going to be unemployed. There's always some place I can go. I can always go and work somewhere. But I will also say that when it comes to mindset, from the very beginning of starting a practice, I never once thought it would work. Like I never really had that feeling of like, well, this is like this could fail. Never, never entered my mind that it could fail, which maybe is like a mental defect that I, that I have that I should be slightly more realistic in the way that I look at life. But but I didn't sit around thinking, what if this fails? Like, I didn't really give myself a safety net. But I knew that there was one there. I mean, you kind of know, well, if it fails, I'll be fine. I think I did the same thing. And I did look at back on it later like, that might have been a little stupid to not <laughs> yeah, be right. worried about right. what happens if I can't get clients or I don't make money. Yeah. But I think it's like what you said. I just knew that I have my law degree. I, I'm right. still bar admitted. Yeah. I can go get a job if I have to, if this doesn't work out. Yeah, and there's always stripping. That's, well, I don't I know mean, who would hire me for there that. There is a market for <laughs> everyone. I have come to find out from the internet. You, you, so. you are right. You are right. Thank God I didn't have to do that. No. Because I don't think anybody wants to see that. No, I don't. Wants to see me either, but I'd be out there. I'd figure well, it's it probably out. Somebody, right? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> so, so yeah. So, thank God that didn't happen. So then you went out on your own, and you have a partner. You've I had do. her from the beginning. From the beginning, our our offices were next to each other at Townsend to Mayo in Newmark. Oh, so she worked there too. She did. So she was made partner the same year I was made partner. So we were partners together, and our offices were next door. And she listened to me sing and all of those things. Um, and so what ended up happening was that when I decided I was going to leave, uh, and, and we were friendly. It's not like we were just coworkers. Like, we were friendly. We spoke to each other. We, you know, um, at one point, I trusted her with my secret. Of, oh, that was, it was, that was dangerous. Palsy, right? Because, I mean... But I, I trusted her enough that I knew she was not going to tell anybody because we had that type of relationship that she wouldn't go around and say, well, I heard Robin's leaving. Yeah. And you know, look, we all know the gossipy people and the non-gossipy people. Like we all know who yes. you can tell a secret to yeah. and who you can't tell a secret yes, to. Yes, we do. Right. Especially when you're in law firm life, you know, like that law firm environment. You always know, like, this attorney is going to run and tell the partner. This attorney is going to, you know, say something to somebody else. You know who you can trust and who you can't. So I revealed my my dark little secret to her that I was planning to go. And she's like, I'll go with you. And I thought she was kidding. I did. Really? I was like, whatever, Liz. Like, and she was like, no, no. Like, I'm, I'm ready. Like, I'll go with you. And I was kind of like, well, that's awesome because... I like her as a person. I like her as an attorney. I like her work ethic. I like her creativity. Like there are all of these things that you look at somebody and you're like, well, she would make a good partner. So when she said it, I was like, all right, well, let's chat. And not that I would tell anybody to be this like crazy and sneaky, but like I I don't understand how they didn't know. Like we Why? would because we would like 
like she would be in my office and we're sitting there like 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 the the whispering and the chatter and like a partner would walk in and we're like oh we were talking about lunch like come on we weren't talking it was just do you think they suspected i don't know i i feel like they didn't because i i felt like they were slightly gobsmacked when we told them so i don't i don't think that they suspected but like we would because go, they had just made you partners, right? So why wouldn't why wouldn't we be happy with that? But like we would go out during our lunch break and go look at office space together. Like so, I just I don't I don't know. But I think sometimes people don't see what they don't want to see. So. Yeah, and I think sometimes at a lot of those firms, and I don't mean this in any disrespect, we're fungible. Yeah. It's like, okay, well, another one left. We'll get it. We'll just fill the space with someone. I'm not saying they thought that. I don't know. Maybe they didn't. Well, well, but look, they're still out there and kicking, and they are cre- incredibly successful without me. Yeah. How? I don't know. I'm kidding. <laughs> no, but, but, you know, like... But but yeah, I don't I don't take that as being a bad thing or an offensive thing to say that I'm replaceable. Like I I am. Did they take it well? Um, I mean, they weren't happy about it. You okay. know, they weren't happy. About, like it wasn't like, oh, that's awesome, good for you. Go yeah. open a firm. You know, I, I'm not going to say that they were that way. Were they nasty about it? No. Okay. I I didn't I didn't feel like it was like this horribly acrimonious breakup. But like it, it certainly wasn't. Let's buy you a cake. I think we did have a cake. Ultimately. I was gonna say, was there a last day party? I think we did have. Well, cake. that's nice. We did. Well, I'll but, tell you what. When I left where I was, I didn't get a cake. <laughs> I mean, we we may have like pushed the cake, but like we did have like a little going. You away. were happy. I was happy. I was like, let's have cake. Let's have booze. But you know. Well, when you told them, did they pretty much just? fire you right there or did you stay for a while i stayed so we we were prepared to give them two weeks of notice um we negotiated for three weeks of notice so we stayed an additional week um to try to you know transition cases and do and and another thing i will say is um again like i because i knew i was leaving i think that i personally transitioned cases anyway and I think I had the ability to do that because I was a quote-unquote partner so like a new case would come in and I would purposely not take it I said why don't we give this to someone so on the team or why don't we you know so I was trying not that was awfully nice of you trying well because you you could have been thinking I better collect as many clients as possible that I can take with me I know because there are people who do that but that's why I'm I'm never going to be a billionaire because I don't think that way like I did I just didn't think that way and I didn't think that they owed me clients or anything belonged to me I mean granted the clients that I brought into the firm I fully expected to take from the firm you know because I brought them in in the first place but um I don't think that was wrong what you did yeah but like I was looking at it as if a client comes in that didn't specifically want me why not give them to somebody else when I know I'm not going to be here so that we don't have to do that transition? So So were they good about not interfering with you taking your clients with you? The clients I brought in, they had no problem with us taking. Okay, good. That's good. That's good. Because you know that we hear so many horror stories about things like this when someone leaves and you know, anybody who's practicing law knows that that's more often than not how it goes. Right. And you can read through the qualifier of the clients we brought in. They had no problems with us taking. That's my qualifier. But, um, but, but yeah, I mean, it's any, it's like a breakup. Any breakup is rough. And I think that we went through stages of breakup where it's at first, it's kind of like, 
you're coming to me telling me you're leaving me. Like, what do you mean? And then yeah. there's like that that kind of like surprise. And oh my God, like, why are you doing this? Like, why wouldn't you want to stay why here? Why wouldn't you ever want why, to start your own Why firm? wouldn't you want to just stay here forever and ever? You know, so there is that. And then there's like the... There, there was anger of like, I can't believe you're doing this. And then there was acceptance of like, all right, well, let's figure out how to make this, you know, work. I don't, I don't think that anybody wanted it to be like a horrible, we will never yeah. speak again thing. Well, I don't think that was their first rodeo either. No. There were other people that had left. No, no. Yeah. So, you know, but, but I think that part of the problem is like, you know, both Liz and I had been there a long time in the scheme of things, you know. Yeah. So you figure when they started that firm – um, actually started the firm of Townsend, Tomeo, and Newmark. I think I came in like a year after they started. So I'd oh. been with them a long time, like from the beginning of yeah. that firm. So. so, but it sounds like you had a, a positive experience and that's nice. So you partnered with Liz, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Calandrillo. Yes. I always say her name wrong, but Calandrillo. Yeah, we get a lot of Spanish pronunciation with her. Yeah. Yes, but Calandrillo. She's yes. Italian though, She's right? She's Italian. Oh. That's right. I keep thinking that's Spanish. Well, it would be nice. We need a Spanish speaker in the office because none of us speak Spanish. But um, no, she speaks fluent Italian. So, oh, wow. Which I is kind of cool. That's what I've been doing wrong all this time. I thought she was Spanish. And I kept thinking, she's saying her name wrong. She's saying her own name wrong. <laughs> she does not know how to say her name. Somebody should tell her that she's saying it wrong. <laughs> so I've been wrong all this time. Sorry, okay. Liz. It's okay. Okay. So you open up with Liz. And was it a pretty good transition? Or did you get smacked in the face with, oh, this is what it's really like to actually run a business? Um, here's what I'll say. And I... I say this knowing how horrible I'm going to sound. It was pretty smooth. Like, I feel bad because there are so many people that are like, oh, my God, this was horrible. And this happened and that. And like, yeah, you have hiccups and you have things that you're like, oh, I didn't know that was going to happen or, you know. But for the most part, I think that we planned really well. We, you know, we talked to a lot of people that helped us a lot. And we got a lot of help starting out. And I, I kind of have to give a shout out to the family law community because um, when I talk about competitive people and cattiness, I don't get a lot of that within the family law bar, in my opinion. Maybe it's just the people that I, you know, I hang with. But um, I got a lot of offers of assistance of like, hey, if you want our vendor list, I'll give it to you. That's hey, great. Hey, if you need, you know, if you need anything, let me know. If you want to know where we got our malpractice insurance, let me know. You know, people saying like, I'll give you all of our old furniture that we don't need so you don't have to start out buying furniture. Like we got so much help. Did that, you get that from men too? Um, it was mostly women. Because I want to say. It was mostly women, I have to say. You know, we were just talking about how women make things personal Mm -hmm. but sometimes it's a good thing Mm -hmm. and that's one example of when it's a good thing yeah i i will say that other women who were law firm owners were very much trying to boost us up and help us and it was it was a little i wouldn't say surprising but it it was it was kind of confusing to me at the beginning because you know until i got into owning my own business i was kind of like but I'm your competition. Like I'm starting a firm to do exactly what you do. And I think that because I had that experience starting out that it made me want to pay that forward. You know, yeah. because I was like, well, 
And, and it, it kind of clicked to me that everybody, so I'm like, well, if nobody else is concerned, and they're not concerned because they're like not like saying, oh, that Robin, Liz, they're not a threat. That wasn't the non-concern. The concern was there's enough success to go around. Yeah. There's enough for all of us. So you can go out and you can eat and be successful and be happy and have a great thriving firm. And so can I. Go figure. That's we can right. both have wonderful, successful, thriving firms. And I think that I learned that very early on when I started of everyone saying, whatever we can do to help you to be successful, you let us know. Well, I think they probably remember what it was like for them when they yeah. were starting out. And I'm sure that there were people who helped them. And I remember who called me, hmm. who sent me flowers, who yep. was helping me out and who sent me referrals. I know who those people were. Right. And I remember and I'm very grateful. Mm hmm. And I would absolutely pay it forward and help other people. But I think that that's what then ends up happening is that because I had that experience, if somebody else comes to me and says, I want to open a firm and I've had I've had people do it, you know, obviously, whether they've started a firm or not, I'm not going to name those names, but I've had people that have come and said, like, hey, can we have lunch? And we sit and we have lunch and they're like, how did you do it? What did you do? And I'm literally I will send you my notes, I will send you my business plan, I will say like whatever you need to get started, I will send to you because why not? I feel like we should do a CLE on the subject, <laughs> but I realize that it, we might not be that popular in the legal community if we teach everyone's associate how to live. <laughs> right. And who's going to be want to be seen at that? You know, what's very funny is that I am very active with the solo and small firm section. And a lot of the solo and small firm section um, CLEs or even at the conference, a lot of it is just how to start a firm, like how to actually start a practice, how to go out on your own. And I remember that um, the conference came up and Liz was like, I'm going to go. And I was like, oh my God, you're going to go. Somebody's going to see you. Like, what do you mean right? you're going to go? So she chose one. Uh, and I know I'm telling the story wrong. I wish she could tell me. But like, she chose one like in the middle of nowhere. Like, I guess they were doing a CLE like someplace far away or something like that. Like it was either in like way up in North Jersey or way down in South Jersey or something like that. And she goes, I'm going to go. And she went. <laughs> and then she, Did came, she run into anybody. She, she did. And she didn't see anybody she knew. <laughs> and then she came back with like all these notes. She goes, OK, here's what I found out. And here's what this. And you got to do trust <laughs> accounts. And here's how we get the trust accounts. And like so she comes back with all of this information. But you're absolutely right that it's even the last conference that that we had in February, there was a segment definitely about kind of like, you know, going out on your own, like making that leap. And I'm looking around the room and I'm kind of thinking, because there are a lot of people I don't know, obviously, and I'm thinking like, how many people's bosses don't know they're here right now learning how to go out on their own? But um, but but yeah, I mean, maybe it could be like a webinar so that people can just watch it. <laughs> I think maybe we should do some kind of secret venue like Fight Club. Yes. And you need like a password, like, you know, it's like something to get in. And then you get in and then we teach you all of the things like... This you is know, how you do it. Right. Like things that nobody's going to okay. tell you. Like binder clips are really expensive. Things people just They're don't tell post you. Post-it notes. Right. Post-it notes. <laughs> well, okay. So we're going to talk about this more later when the mics are turned off. Sounds good. Yeah. Okay. So what's been the most surprising thing about running your business? The most surprising thing? That's a really hard question because I don't think a lot of... I, I think what surprised me actually is that I actually like running a business. 
Because I, I did think that that part's going to suck. Like, I don't want to have to deal with, like, this and how and dealing with vendors and the IT and how stuff going to get paid and dealing with staff and HR issues. And, like, I didn't think I would like that. Marketing and networking and all of those things, like, I actually enjoy promoting my business. I enjoy, you know, coming up with marketing ideas or new, like, you and I talk about this yeah. all the time of, like, I have this idea and I'm thinking, well, try and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But it's it's kind of exciting to come up with something new that I did not think that I would like being a business owner. And I actually love being a business owner that, I mean, so much to the point that I would probably spend more time running the business than I would practicing law if given my choice, um, that I would love to be able to keep those cases that I really love and that are interesting to me and and then spend the rest of the time building the business because I really do find it fun. And I didn't think I would. I didn't I th- think I'd like it at all. I think it really does give you a lot of opportunities to be creative. Yes. And to use a part of your brain that you're not really using when you're practicing law. Yeah. And and I really like that part. Like I like the creativity and coming up with something different and, you know, freaking Liz out when I come in, I'm like, okay, I have an idea. And she knows it's going to be something off the wall. You know what I mean? But like just being able to say, I have this idea. Why don't we do this and try to see if this works or, you know, have a seminar or, you know, put up a booth at a women's expo and like, like you just come up with random things that you want to do. And, you know, nine times out of 10, she says, okay. And then the 10th time, she's like, you're, you're out of your mind. Like, go, go take several seats because you're out of your mind. But- it really is like a marriage, though, when you have <laughs> a partner, is. isn't it? It is. You have to be so careful that you pick the right person, like, a, you know, a husband or a yeah. wife, that you're compatible, that you have a similar vision, that you have the same work ethic or or you don't have to be the same, mm-hmm. but whatever you are and whatever she is, they have to complement each other. I think it's actually good to not be the same in certain areas. You know, like by way of example, I have no problem with, you know, meeting people, business promotion, networking, talking to people I don't know, going to social events, going by myself. Like, I don't care. She doesn't really like doing that. So... It's fine because I do. Like I'm okay with it. You know, she likes I'm, doing other things you don't like. Yeah, but to then do. she likes doing things I hate doing. So it's fine because she doesn't mind doing it. So she'll go out and do the things that I don't really care to do, and I'll go out and do the things that she doesn't really care to do. Then there may be some things that neither of us care to do, and then we flip a coin. You know, yeah. we figure it out. Well, John and I are like that too. Our strengths are really in different areas, mm-hmm. and it just works out. Yeah. Not that we haven't had growing pains, but. I think it's like a marriage. Like I think, like you said, if somebody had a marriage and they said, well, we're married and we never fight. Yeah, come on. Well, come on. You need to fight. Those are the people that are going to be in your office one day. Because they're like, we're just friends. Yeah, if you don't fight, you don't care. You know what I mean? That's right. Yeah. So you're going to have disagreements. You're going to fight. You're going to not see eye to eye on everything. But I think as long as you can come and communicate in a respectful way, you can get through it. But choose wisely, my friends. Yes. Okay, so I end every interview with a series of questions and actually just changed up the questions a little bit. Oh, no. So. I'm ready. Let's do this. What's the best advice that you ever got? The best advice that I ever got was never wear cheap shoes. My grandmother gave me that advice. That's good advice, I got to yeah. say, because you can spot cheap shoes a mile away. And it's not only spotting the cheap shoes, 
but also they mess up your feet. I remember getting <laughs> getting these horribly cheap shoes from Payless, and I ended up like I don't I don't know what the correct terminology for it, but like they were like rubbing the top of my feet. I ended up with these like crazy corns. It was like I, I was so uncomfortable. And you know what we we spend all day on our feet, so the best thing you can do is wear good quality, comfortable shoes that you don't have to suffer through. So, so what I think can, that was the best advice I ever had. What kind of shoes do you get now? Um, I get all sorts of shoes. I mean, you know, you go and you get the Louboutins and they're not... They're so uncomfortable. They're so Well, you know, I have one pair that I was actually going to wear today that's super comfortable. Like, I'll actually wear them to court because they're super comfortable. Well, I got to see those. They're in the trunk of my car. I'll show them to you. <laughs> And then I, I buy expensive shoes and then treat them horribly. But they're in the trunk of my car. Um, so I think you like you get a couple of those. Like, ooh, you know, I got them. And then maybe you get some Valentinos. Like, ooh, I got them. But like my everyday shoes, I, I would say every day I probably alternate. And they're both black. I probably alternate between a pair of black Valentinos and a pair of black Louboutins. Well, I definitely got to like, see those. Every day. So if you won... A hundred million dollars in the lottery. Mm -hmm. What would you do with it? And I don't mean in the sense like, what would you go buy? I mean, would you keep your firm? Would you keep doing what you're doing? So I would absolutely keep my firm. I would buy a building for my firm. And it would be a beautiful building similar to what I'm sitting in right now. If you've never seen the wonderful (laughs) office space here. Um, But I would buy a building and I would continue to have my firm. I do not think I would work in the firm to the capacity that I do now. Like I think I would more look towards building the firm and probably building some areas of the firm that we can't afford to build now, like doing more pro bono work or, you know, things that, you know, that we pick and choose through the year of taking on pro bono cases, but I would have like a pro bono department, you know, like, a mm, that's nice. you know what I mean? A, something a, charitable, something charitable, but that we can choose to take on the case and why, and, you know, that they would get that same high level of service because it's still a law firm that's not taking on every single case and that they don't have the caseload of something like legal services, which they do great work, but they're very, very busy. Um, but no, I would not I would not say, OK, I've won $100 million and now Ross and Calandrillo is dead. Ross and Calandrillo would just be huge. Yeah, it okay. would be different. Yeah. Yeah. If you were writing life's instruction manual... Mm-hmm. What would be the first entry? Life's instruction manual. The first entry would be get plenty of sleep. That's good advice. Yeah. I think like we we actually don't think about how important sleep is, but you know, you can't change the world if you're tired. <laughs> so so um, I think that would probably be my first instruction is get plenty of sleep and make your bed every morning. Also advice for my grandmother. Oh, go figure. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue to the next question. What person do you most admire and why? Is it is it living, living dead either? It could be anybody. It could be living dead. It could be a relative. Not. Wow. I mean, I can't see my grandmother because I've already mentioned her twice. So I think that's kind of an obvious that uh, how much admiration I have for her. Well, is it her? Is she the person you most admire? I don't know. I mean, I, I, I vacillate between 
her and my mother. And I think that the reason I say my mom is because like she's still here and influencing me every single day. And, you know, so it's and when you look at all of the stuff that I mean, both of them that they I mean, they went through completely different times. I mean, even when you just look at it and again, this is a whole other podcast. But if you look at it from the perspective of being a black woman in America at the time that they were both a black woman in America, man. Like, I, I I can't imagine the things that they went to. Like, my grandmother graduated from college. Wow. You know what I mean? Like, as a black woman at that time, you know, to graduate from college is such a huge thing that, you know, a lot of people didn't do. You I know, wish so, I could have her on here. I know. <laughs> you and me both. Maybe she'll come to me in a dream tonight and tell me what I should have said. Do they share those experiences with you? Have they? Your mom and your grandmother? My mom, definitely. But my grandmother, I don't think as much as I probably would like. And only because um, she she was always like, I don't know if this is the right word, but she's a lady. She was always a lady. Like, I don't complain. I'm not going to sit and talk to you about, you know, bad things and horrible things. And, you know, she would never dwell on anything like that. Like she was a very strong person that was just kind of like, all right, we're all going to put on our big girl pants and we're not going to complain about things because this is just life. Yeah. But I don't think that she would have sat and said, let me tell you how hard this was. I don't think she would have ever complained about it. And I think in retrospect, one of the things that I wish that I would have done was kind of sit down and ask her those questions and kind yeah. of get some more like, well, what was life really like? But she was just my grandmother making me lemon meringue yes. pie. Yeah, you're not you thinking know? about that. Like you don't think about the fact that like, maybe I should be asking her for more than her cookie recipe. Like maybe I should ask her what was life like? Like how was it, you know, being a black woman and going to college and, you know, growing up in Virginia and, you know, then moving to Detroit and like how, how was that? You know, and I didn't really ask those questions because I think I was too young to understand the value in them. But because of that, you know, I have my mom that I can just annoy the crap out of her with questions now. So you do because you're an adult and you see the world differently. Right. right. And you want to know, like, well, what was your experience? What was that like? Tell me that story. You know, how was it? You know, she tells me the story of remembering when, you know, her grandmother was first able to vote and them taking a bus in South Carolina to go and vote and how important that was, which was one of the reasons, again, different podcasts, that I lose my mind about voting. Like, I don't care if it's an inconvenience. You do understand how many people died for this right, how inconvenient it was for my great-grandmother to have to take multiple buses to go and vote. And, you know, I have to get in my car and maybe wake up a little bit earlier so that I can go to the voting booth before I go to work. All right. Just, Isn't just it incredible vote. when you think about it that there was a time... Not all that long ago, no. when both of us, neither as of us, women could vote, could, could not vote. We were not allowed to vote. Right. That's amazing. Right. And it is Women's History Month. So. It is. So I think that's an important thing to note. But when you were growing up, did you grow up mindful that my life might be a little harder because I'm a black woman? Um. Yes and no. I think that my parents were very open about racial issues. So it was very much like we are black people in America and our experiences will be different. But I don't think that they did it on such a level that they wanted me to feel different or have to act different or go through life differently. But I think that they just wanted some amount of awareness. And um, 
you know, luckily I didn't necessarily grow up with it being thrown in my face of you're different. I certainly remember growing up and there being three black people in my school and that was it. You know, I do remember having that experience of of feeling some level of difference. I remember, you know, even as as late as college, like people coming up and being like, can I touch your hair? And I'm like, what? And I'm like, why are you? At that time I was like natural, like I had like the big curly fro. And it's kind of like, no, like I would prefer you not touch my, like what, like, what are we doing right now? You know what I mean? So, yeah. so you do kind of have those experiences of things being different. But I think that, you know, I was taught that, you know, there are racial issues and you do need to be sensitive to them and you do need to understand them, but you do not need to dwell in them. So I was never really taught to, to dwell in my blackness, but just to celebrate my blackness and, and say like, it's fine. And that's who I am. And, you know, yeah, I may need to be a little bit more cognizant of certain things that maybe people who aren't black don't have to be cognizant of. Um, and even to this day, you still have to have that level of awareness. But I, I don't think I was ever taught to to let that bog me down or be an excuse, you know? You're just being you every day. Yeah, just living the dream. Yeah, <laughs> living the dream. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? Mm. So my 20-year-old self... I have like non-constructive advice and I have constructive advice. So I'm going to give both. I think my 20-year-old self, I would tell her to um, be more financially literate and that credit is important because I think that um, at that age, like you kind of just like spend, spend, spend and you're not saving and you're not thinking about money and you're not thinking about, you know, the fact that you should try to take care of yourself financially, you're kind of like life is, you know, just life. That would probably be my constructive advice. And then my non-constructive advice would probably be to sleep with more people. Well, I wasn't expecting that. Well, <laughs> you know, and I think that's because, you know. So your oats. Yeah, because you're young and who cares? I mean, as long as you're doing it safely and you're doing it because you want to and not because you feel social pressure to do it. But I think that women feel social pressure to not be sexual. And I think that's a whole other episode, too. Yeah. But, but I do think that at 20, you're kind of like, just be young and have fun. As long as you're being safe and you're happy and you're doing what you want to do, like, Go live life because then you're going to get old and you're going to be too tired to have sex. So just go have sex now. And maybe not as many opportunities. <laughs> maybe maybe not as many opportunities. Exactly. Well, it's not too late for you, Robin. <laughs> right. You can still go through your go, slutty phase. Go out and be a trollop. Yes, like, I, I guess I still could. But. Well, I've said on other shows that we need to discontinue the word bitch. You know, I've talked about how when we're as bosses, when we assert ourselves that there's this B word that sometimes gets thrown around and I don't really get what that's about. And we should just all stop using it. Mm-hmm. But I also think another word we need to stop is slut. Yeah. Because what does that even mean? And men can, we've talked about some of the gender differences. Yeah. It really irks me that no one's ever going to say when a man sleeps around that he's a slut or he's done something wrong. I mean, I have. But when, I've called plenty of really? men sluts. Man slut? Man slut. Well, I, I think it's much less common, right? I absolutely agree. And why can't women do that? What yeah. really, honestly, what's the big deal? 
Well, and and I think that it's becoming less of a big deal, but I do think that part of it, and that's why I would give that advice to my 20-year-old self, is I think that part of it is that when you're younger, you do care a little bit more about slut-shaming. Yes. Like, like, oh my God, like, I can't, like, I can't sleep with this guy, even though I want to. I can't because, like, I don't want to, you know, like, you know, add another notch to the belt. Like, I don't want to be like, oh, I've slept so... Who cares? Yeah. In the scheme of things, like guys don't care. Like who cares? So I think as long as it's what you want to do, and I I keep saying that because that's very important, not to make someone else happy or not to make a guy happy or not to you know keep a relationship. You know that's not a reason to do it. But if you're kind of like you know what I want to, I kind of want to go sleep with that guy. Yeah. And you're doing it in a manner that's safe and you're protecting yourself. I say go for it. I agree. I think that's that's great advice. We haven't <laughs> heard that yet on Wake Up Call, but but I like it. There you go. And I think. Also, what we're preoccupied with a lot in our 20s, I hope nobody's still worried about this. I'm in my 40s. Mm. You're not far away from it. Nope. I'm knocking on the door. There used to be this worry like, well, if I do it too soon, he's going to think I'm a slut. Mm -hmm. And I can't have sex on the first date. And, you know, second date's a little questionable, too. Mm. When is it okay? And I feel like when I was young, I worried about that all the time. Did you? I think that that I did. But I also, it's funny now as an adult, like you think back and you're like, well, he's having sex on the first date, too. So if that yeah. makes me a slut, then doesn't what that make you he? a slut? Like, well, he's aren't not, we all though. slutting it up? Like, aren't we just slutting it together? He's Isn't not, that what we're doing? It's different. Yeah. It's different. But I think, I certainly hope that there aren't grown-ass women yeah. that are worrying about this anymore. Because There probably if, are. There probably are. There probably because are. If, if you're feeling it and you're both attracted to each other and you're both feeling it, then... I just don't think that all of these other things should be in your head. And just to take it a step further, that if you are feeling it, and let's say it's the first date, and you go, you know what, I'm, I really feel attracted to this person, and I want to have sex with this person, and you do. And then as a result of that, he or she decides that they no longer want anything to do with you. Which well, happens. Then, then you know what? I'm glad that I figured out that's who you are yeah. now versus later. Because if you're that kind of person that you would judge me for that, even though you've engaged in the same behavior, then you're a hypocrite and I don't like you. That's an interesting point that you raise because if the, why do the women have to worry about it? The only reason the women have to worry about it is because the guys are still thinking that way. Right. The guys are still thinking, well, she had sex with me on the first date. Right. And I actually had this conversation not too long ago with a couple of guys and we never really got to finish the conversation, mm. but maybe I should bring them on here and we can talk about should. it. And like a panel. Yeah. And this guy who I don't think was particularly sophisticated, mm -hmm. you know, he's kind of like a caveman, made that comment that, well, she had sex with me on the first date, so I'm not going to. I'm not going to go out with her again. Right. But then. If, and I'm like, but why? But then he has that mindset. So to me, and one of the things that you said that he's not particularly sophisticated and he's kind of like a caveman. And that's one of the reasons he had those thoughts. And so I'm kind of thinking, well, you know, maybe I should have sex with him just to weed it out. Like now I know that you're not sophisticated and you kind of think like a caveman and maybe you have some old school because 
think about it, right? Like if that's the way you think about things, that you would judge a woman for sleeping with you on the first date, how well are you going to deal with a woman who owns her business, has to go do all sorts of things, jet setting, like I need to go here. I'm going to get on a plane. Sorry, I'll see you later. You can get your own dinner. You can wash your own dishes. I'm not doing these things for you. You're, we're probably not going to be compatible anyway. You are so right. You You're know? so right. Because if they're thinking that way about one thing, what the hell else are they thinking? Right. Right. Yeah. Right. I feel like gone are the days or should be anyway. We're working towards it when I have to do something simply because of my gender. Right. Right. I don't have to clean the kitchen and mm-hmm. bake cookies because I'm a woman. And I do clean the kitchen and bake cookies only because I just do it better. Because you want to. <laughs> I do <laughs> Well, you do everything it. better, Robin. I'm better at it, you know? Like, I, I try to be like, hey, do you want to wash the dishes? And then I'm like, maybe I'll rewash the dishes now. So, you know, it's fine. Well, that just triggered a whole <laughs> slew of other topics. Yeah, right? So maybe we'll have to come, we'll have to gather up some ladies and come on yeah. here and talk more about this. And I actually would like to have some men involved to hear their input. I think that would be a great idea and a lot of fun. Yeah, it would be. Anyway, good stuff. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you for this delicious tea and my no drama. No drama llama mug. No drama llama mug. That was going to be our slogan for the law firm. No drama llama. Mm. That was our mascot because we don't want to be like no drama divorce if there's such a thing. I think there can be. I think there can be too. Yeah. All right. So we're about to head out to Steakhouse 85 for dinner. Let's do this. I can't wait. For a medium rare ribeye. Oh, man. I was really decided on the pork chop, but now I think I might have to get the ribeye. <laughs> we can we can split. Oh, yeah. We yes, can do we can that. Do, we, we can do, do that. that. Okay, All great. right. Let's go. We got to go. We, we got to eat. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Wake Up Call, the podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to know more about me, you can find out more on my website, christinaprevitt.com. And be sure to sign up for my newsletter where I talk about everything that I'm reading, learning, listening to, doing, basically everything that I'm obsessed with right now. Follow me on social media. Look up Wake Up Call the Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. If you'd like to be a guest on Wake Up Call or there's someone you'd like to hear on my podcast, please email me at wakeupcallthepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you and see you next time.